Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore. Therefore is always important for what we had talked about previously in light of everything uh, in previous to that. Now, chapter 5 starts out with a therefore that goes back to chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, basically. This, therefore, probably covers what was already seen in chapter 5, which is about us being justified by faith. We have been justified by faith. So here is the reason for we need to be justified by faith. Here is the rationale. Here is what led up to that in a very powerful few verses that introduces to us one of the most dominating themes, not only in all of the New Testament, but really in all of Scripture. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we want to talk just for a moment, and what you have here in this passage for the remainder of this chapter is a comparison and a contrasting of two men, Adam and Jesus. Those men uh, represent something. They represent a way or a, a type of life that is lived or could potentially be lived, and they represent some results of things that could happen. And so these, this, the comparison of Adam and, and Jesus becomes extremely important uh, for what it means to us. Uh, and what you have here is, in verse 12, saying that through one man, sin entered, death entered, for all of sin. Now, Romans 3.23 makes it very clear, for all of sin, and falls short of the glory of God. We understand all of us are sinners. Uh, Romans 4.25, also part of that Roman road, said that uh, Christ uh, died for our transgressions and raised back to life for our justification. He died for our sins, raised back to life for our salvation. Uh, Romans 5, 8 says, Christ, uh, while we were yet sinners, uh, Christ died for us. God showed his great love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know we sin. But what this passage is doing is saying something beyond our acts of sin. It's talking about the existence of sin in this world. And what it teaches is, is that through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into this world. And so you come up with here one of the fundamental foundational passages of the doctrine of original sin. Some people are concerned that it says in verse 12, because all sin, that it's not talking about the sin of Adam, but it's talking about all our individual sins. But if you read the passage or the rest of the verses carefully, which you will do, it's what it's demonstrating is that sin exists, that we are sinners. We are in the condition of sin because of Adam. The doctrine of original sin simply stated is this, that when Adam sinned, all of his progeny, all of his children, all of us who result, who come from Adam, are stained with the guilt of sin. It's not just that we have a tendency to sin. We are guilty of sin. Oftentimes in my prayer in the Lord, I acknowledge that I am a sinner by nature, and I'm a sinner by choice. I choose to sin. Don't get me wrong. I'm guilty and condemned of the choices of my sin in my life. But I'm born guilty of the sin even of Adam. It's, it, it, we sometimes in Western culture have a hard time understanding the corporate nature of humanity that is oftentimes presented in Scripture. Remember, Scripture is, rented, I mean, is written from an Eastern mindset, an Eastern perspective, more of an Oriental perspective. Not Oriental like in Asia, but Oriental like in that part of the world. And uh, what you have to realize is that throughout Scripture, mankind is, is oftentimes used corporately. For instance, uh, in the book of Hebrews, we were studying about Melchizedek. If you remember, we did that. Uh, I preached several messages in the summer, and we had that long Friday night study. One of the things Hebrew tells us is that, that when Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, that 
Levi, who would be you know, the, 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 you know, his great-grandson, there was his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, Jacob's son Levi, and all the Levites, all the priests would come from Levi, that Levi was paying a tithe to Melchizedek as well because he was in the loins of Abraham. And therefore, when uh, Abraham paid that tithe to Melchizedek, all of the priesthood was paying that tithe as well. And so when he talked about Jesus being likened unto Melchizedek, he was talking about the superiority of Christ over the priesthood. That was a corporate way of doing things. Throughout the, the Old Testament, Israel is viewed not so much as individuals, but as a corporate. So we're in the book of Exodus a little bit on Sunday mornings, God delivering the whole nation of Israel. In, in Israel, when one sins, all pay the price. In the book of Joshua, after uh, they take Jericho, and uh, you know, they're, 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 they're successful and victorious, when they come to the, uh, the Battle of Ai, and uh, they are not able to defeat the enemies of God there. And they find out it's because one member of the people of Israel had sinned. He had taken plunder from Jericho. And because he had taken plunder, the whole nation suffered. They had to remove that one person. There is that understanding of a corporate sense. Now, we come to the New Testament, and we, and I think rightly so, oftentimes focus on individual. We talk about individual faith, giving my life to Christ. We talk about your parents don't save you. Your, your parents' faith don't save you. You have to come to a place in your life where you give your life to Jesus. Paul writes later on in Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Later on, a few verses later, he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but you've got to call upon the name of the Lord. It's an, salvation is an individual thing. But we also understand that Jesus Christ died for humanity. He died so that all of us potentially could find salvation. Oh, only a few of the elect actually do. It's open for everyone. So what we have to be comfortable with, even if we, in our Western mindset we don't think that way, we have to be comfortable with the concept because God dictates this, that we are all guilty of sin because of Adam. And so I am born sinful, but that does not mean, and, and some people get carried away on this, and I think they're totally wrong because Scripture does not support it, that when a baby dies in infancy, that that baby then is condemned to hell because of Adam's sin. It doesn't mean that we have a merciful God. And there are places in Scripture that makes that clear that that is not the case. But that's not the focus of original sin. If you make the focus of original sin what happens to an infant, you've missed the concept. Original sin is simply this. All of us are guilty of sin so that we cannot live a sinless, perfect life. We're all going to sin individually, but even if you somehow could argue that you never committed a sin, which in and of itself is a sin, you would still be guilty of the sin of Adam. And so it's an extremely important understanding because if you do not have the concept of original sin, a lot of what happens with Jesus falls by the wayside because then you, in theory, could have a person live a perfect life in no need of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Also, when you deny original sin, you will inevitably travel down a road of heresy. Everybody who denies original sin gets to a point where they have other false beliefs. When you have one false belief, when you build your theology on a false doctrine, it inevitably leads you to other false doctrines, and it all falls by the wayside. I will not give you a boring uh, recital of church history or of the sin of Pelagius, but I will tell you that this was where Pelagius went wrong. And none of you have any idea of what I'm talking about. So go study up on Pelagius. And Pelagius, and you will understand one of the great heresies of all of Christian faith. Now, for unto the law, it says in verse 13, sin was in the world. Now, we understand because of the law that sin was there. 
But sin is not imputed or sin is not given over when there's no law. At the time from, from, uh, of Adam, there was just one rule. Don't eat of the tree. Don't eat that thing. He did. After that, there's, not a bunch of, there's no law. But we know man was sinful. I mean, we know in the time of Noah, man was wicked and exceedingly sinful above all things, totally wicked. The law hadn't been given. So man couldn't be guilty of breaking those laws. What were they guilty of? Well, we know early in Romans that there are certain things imprinted on our heart. We know, for instance, that, that, there's, that people worship created things rather than the creator and there was sin there. So we know that. But beyond that, there's simply this idea that man was sinful, but there were no laws to break. How is that so? Because of the sin of Adam. They inherited that sin. And inheriting that sin, then our tendency is to commit individual acts of sin. So because I was born sinful, then even though I may not have any law of God, I'm going to commit sins such as worshiping the creation instead of the creator. They did a lot of that back in Genesis. There's a lot of sin in Genesis. There's no commandments, no laws. Cain killed his brother Abel. That was a sin. There was no law that says thou shalt not murder. But there was still a sin. We know that because he was guilty of doing something that was against what he knew was not right. And he was doing that because he inherited the sin of his daddy, the sin of Adam. And so we need to understand the importance of that. Through Adam, sin entered into the world. Notice it says in verse 14, nevertheless, in, in light of what we said about that, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Moses gave the law. How did death reign from Adam to Moses? Because man was sinful. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Notice, people who did not commit Adam's sin of eating of the tree, they still died. Adam then is a type or a foreshadowing of him who was to come. So you see right here in these few verses, what is important is Paul is going to go through his argument in just a minute of comparing and contrasting Jesus. You see here the groundwork he is making, that sin came through Adam. Listen, if you don't like that, your problem's with Paul, not me. Now, outside of Jesus, the only other person that I wouldn't want to argue with is Paul. Jesus is number one of all the people that ever lived. I don't ever want to disagree with Jesus. After him, I don't think I want to disagree with Paul. Paul's a lot smarter than me. I know he's a lot smarter than you. And if Paul is telling us this is the way it is, you better accept what Paul says. Because the Holy Spirit's leading him and guiding him. And listen, there's not a lot of other ways to take this. You can try. But when you start denying this, you start getting through these next few verses, you're in a heap of trouble. Because your arguments are going to fall by the wayside over what Paul writes. So notice what he writes. Verse 15. But, here's the contrasting. The free gift is not like the transgression. In other words, there's a transgression, there's a sin, but the gift is different. For if by the transgression of the one, many died, and people died because of sin, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus, Christ, abound to the many. So here he's saying when Adam sinned, death came to everybody. But when Jesus came, the grace of God was superior to death because it overcame that. The grace of God allowed the death of Jesus to overcome 
the sin of Adam. So that the opportunity for all people to experience salvation existed. Verse 16 says this, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment rose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. One sin resulted in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So here's the picture. Adam committed one little old sin, and it brought death into the world for all humanity. All humanity sins. There's many, many transgressions. There's many sins. And yet through the many, many sins, there is one who comes to bring salvation. I think it's interesting that the word transgression is used a lot because the word transgression means to offend against. So it's a sin against God. It brings the idea of a transgression that you transgress against someone and you transgress against God. So the transgressions against God were many. And it resulted in the justification because of one man. Jesus came. We've already talked about justification numerous times. Talked about it extensively last week. Verse 17 says this. Says this, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So think about this. One man's sin, death came. How much more? This is a, it's a common way of writing, especially Paul. Death came through Adam, but the grace of God is so much greater that through one man, the, the, the sin, the price, the penalty that comes with Jesus overcame that sin. The power of God is always greater than the sin of man. So man, God is not bound by our sin. He is not defeated by our sin. Sunday when I preach about God being in control, I'm going to talk about the fact that God you know, brings great victory. That God defeats evil. When he chooses. He doesn't do it when we choose. He does it when he chooses. God always wins out. In fact, when it, comes to, to, when it comes to things concerning God, you want to be on the right side of evil. In other words, you, when God's dealing with evil, you want to be on, on God's side of things. God's always going to win out. He's always going to defeat. This is his power to do that. So, so sin comes through Adam. And so death comes. But then Christ comes and the grace of God, and this is, this is the beautiful picture, it's all by grace. We don't deserve any of it. When, when, whenever we get to thinking that we deserve what God offers, understand the Bible says we don't. Grace is that which is absolutely undeserved. We are sinners who transgress, who sin. We violate the law of God. But in grace, God overcomes that. I, I, I sometimes realize that I don't probably in my own personal life, and then, then that probably reflects in preaching, I don't deal with grace enough. I, I make the mistake of taking grace for granted. If you're not careful and you take grace for granted, you'll get to the point where you think that which is undeserved becomes deserved. That's, that's, that's a danger. That's, it's, sometimes I have to remind myself, I don't deserve what I have. I'm not going to beat myself up and get a low self-esteem. I'm not talking about that. I just got to remember, I don't deserve what I have. Salvation. 
I don't deserve that. And when I come to the point where I realize I don't deserve that, then it usually motivates me to help other people come to Christ. Because if I don't deserve it and they don't deserve it, but I have it, they need it. Because none of us deserve it. And grace is just, it's one of the most important doctrines in all of Scripture. It's at the heart of who God is. God is a holy God. And when he interacts with us, he uses his holiness. But his grace is always at work. If God's grace was not always at work, God would have destroyed mankind for all eternity. If God's grace wasn't at work, none of us would experience the salvation God gives me. We teach that we are saved by grace through faith. Because to teach anything else is to say that I deserve salvation. Don't deserve it. So the righteousness reigns, is supreme in the life of the one Jesus Christ. It defeats all else. Verse 18 says, so then, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now here's very careful. It talks about the justification of life to all men. That does not mean that all are saved. Scripture is very clear. Always have to be sure that we, when we come to a passage that seems to say something that, well, I don't think that, I've read differently other places, the, the larger picture always takes precedent. Justification comes to all men, of life to all men, because it's possible for all men and women, you know, all of humanity to come to that place. Remember, justification is what God does. It's not what we do. God in Christ declares us just. That possibility for justification is open to all people. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of babies born all the time. We got, I, think, I think we got one being born in November. I know we got like three being born in January. I think I found another one's coming in April. This one's I know about. And so every one of those lives, every one of those babies, as cute as they are and as innocent and sweet as they are, they're born sinners. Now, they're not held accountable to their sin because they're babies. I got that. Don't, don't freak out. And we're not going to secretly baptize them just to be careful because baptism doesn't save us. But all those children are going to grow up and then they're going to start committing acts of sin, evidently at age two, though I still don't think God holds them guilty. But those two-year-old kids are sinful little critters. They really are. Some of those three-year-olds are just evil. I mean, they're just, whoa, man. Just like their parents, you know. <laughs> so here, here, here's what happens. At that age, we understand that it's possible for all of those kids to be saved. We don't know what's going to happen in their life. God, God will declare who he chooses to declare just. For grace through faith, people will be saved. We don't know who will come to faith. Now, I have a pretty good idea that if you raise your kids in the faith, and, we, and we, if you go over to Wambaland and Upstreet, those of you that work there, you know, you, you should know our philosophy over there. What we, what, you know, if you're over in Wambaland, we want to teach them God made them, God loves them, Jesus is their friend. And when they come to, to Upstreet, by the time they're out of there, we want all those kids to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and to be disciples. That is our strategy. That is our goal. Everything we do works towards that. That's why I want us over there now. So I'm a firm believer that if you raise your kids 
you know, to become followers of Christ by God, by his grace. Not, it's not because of your work, but because of his grace, he, he will save them. They will come to faith. Potentially, justification is open to all of them. We don't know. Now, I do know that they won't all come to Christ because there will be some who will reject him. Because they will follow that path of rebellion. What I'm saying is, that's what Paul is pointing out to us. Everybody, everybody sins. We're all guilty. And we all have the opportunity at some point that we understand there's the opportunity that God may choose to save. Verse 19 says this, Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, it's an interesting thing when it talks about the many being made righteous. And some people go to town on how many people will be saved. Well, there'll be a lot of people saved, and all the, all the, all the Christian, you know, heaven will be full of people, you know, all, most of the world will be saved, all sorts of stuff. If you come to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, towards the end of it, in verse 13, he says, Narrow is the gate, narrow is the way of salvation, but wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to eternal damnation, that leads to destruction, and he says, many travel it. But narrow is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and very, very few find that way. Jesus indicates that few are the ones who come to salvation. Later on in that same passage, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, run the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the will of the Father being to come to Christ. Now, here's the thing. Is there a few or is there many? Well, it depends on your perspective. Now, if I were to tell you that on the 28th, we're going to baptize a thousand people. A thousand people will come to Christ. We're going to go, wow, that's unbelievable. That's a bunch. That's just tons and tons of people. Literally, probably if you weigh them, a ton of people. If I would tell you over the next 10 years of the entire population of Las Cruces, only 1,000 people will come to Christ that aren't already saved. We would say that's not very many. That's few. As, as I read Scripture as a whole, I've come to an understanding. No, I like to be wrong in this. That it's not about percentages of people. But in the history of mankind and the billions of people, there will not be but a few who will actually come to Christ. But compared before Christ comes, came, it will be the many. See, Paul is saying many will come to Jesus because of the grace of God, but that many doesn't mean a majority. It means many as compared to if Christ hadn't come. You see, through the one man, Adam, everybody's condemned. Through Jesus, though, those that have come to faith will be many compared to those that if he had not come. Now, if, some, if, if I find out on that one I'm wrong, and that a whole more than I thought going to heaven, that'd just be fantastic. I don't think I'm wrong, because I, I deal with human beings like you do all the time, and we know that most people aren't followers of Christ. In fact, in a, in a world of, what, 7 billion people, a third of them even claim Christianity. So right there, you've got two-thirds who don't. And I don't even know that all that third are saved. But the law came so that the transgression could increase. In other words, what about Moses and the law? What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law wasn't to save. The purpose of the law was pointed out that we're sinful. Make us aware of what's going on. 
The law came so that transgression would increase. In other words, the law didn't come to make more sinners. There was already sinners. The law, we were all sinners. Everybody was sinners. But the law came so that we wouldn't understand we're sinners. <laughs> where sin increased, grace increased all the more. But, so when, when Moses said, listen, don't worship any other gods. They were already worshiping other gods. He's saying that's a sin. That's what's getting you in trouble. Now, also, the law, the Ten Commandments, if you remember, were for the people of Israel to live their life by. When you kept the Ten Commandments, you were demonstrating that you were of the covenant people of Israel. Today, you keep the, Christians keep the Ten Commandments not to save us, but to demonstrate we're followers of Christ. Because breaking the Ten Commandments demonstrate that you're outside of fellowship with God. So, let me read verse 21, and I'll come back to the grace increasing more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the law came and sin increased. But where sin increased, grace was even more. So, God's grace always tops sin. And it's not like, it's not, okay, there's, there's five quantities of sin, so there's six quantities of grace. And over here, there's 20 quantities of sin, and there's 21 quantities of grace. It's not the measure. It's just saying this. Wherever there is sin, grace is greater. You don't quantify grace. I, don't even, I would say you probably don't even qualify grace, but you certainly don't quantify grace. When I'm saved by grace, I got all the grace God's going to give me, whatever that is. Whether I utilize it or live by it, it's a whole other thing. I don't, I, don't get, I don't get a little grace here and there. If you grew up in a Catholic church, when you take the sacraments, you get grace. Grace is dispensed. It's dispensed at baptism. It's dispensed at the Eucharist or Mass. It's dispensed at communion. It's dispensed at certain points. And I understand that. And I love my Catholic brothers and sisters. But, but that's not what Scripture says. Grace isn't given here or there. I got all the grace I'm ever going to get. Because I got all the God that I need I'm going to get. It's not a quantifiable entity. It's just God. So sin reigned through death. Then grace would reign through righteousness. Because of Jesus Christ our Lord, we have eternal life. What a great statement. So that sin reigned to death through Adam. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Lord, what does grace get you? Eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ. Sin comes through Adam. Eternal life comes through Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is the byproduct of God's grace. Nothing to do with me. Everything to do with God. So, Paul lays out this beautiful picture. Sin came through Adam. Grace came. By God came through Jesus Christ, which brought us righteousness and justification. We are saved through Jesus. Now, remind you, I'm guilty of sin by nature and by choice. That's, this is what we've seen. Adam is by nature. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. I chose to sin. I got both. I got, I got sin covered every way you can imagine, okay? And, and except, you know, well, the baby left, but except for that little baby that was here a while ago, every one of us in that same condition. Some of those kids over in, in Awamba land, or in Awana, they're, they're just sinners by nature. They haven't committed acts of sin yet. <laughs> Some of them are close, but they haven't yet. I don't think a single child in 
Wimbledon at the age of five there have, have, have committed acts of sin. They're heading down that road. You can see it in them, right? Some of your parents are going, man, mine's close. If you don't think so, come talk to some of us. We'll help you. But they're guilty of Adam's sin. That's not, not going to condemn them in, uh, for eternity in hell, no. But that is a warning to us that sin is there, crouching, controlling, dominating their life. So teach them about Jesus so that by the grace of God they can come to faith. That's what we're doing over there. Teaching them about Jesus because we believe Jesus saves. And only Jesus saves. And so we pray that they'll come to a place of faith in their life. We give them every opportunity. We share the gospel with them so they'll come to faith. All right. Questions? Will I be? Oh, figured I'd get something. Okay. NIV version says trespass. Transgr uh, I use transgression. Anybody says trespass. Normally, the New American Standard uses transgression. NIV smooths it over as trespass. It's the same word. We don't use transgression often in our, our English language. So the NIV uses, it's one of those places where, where they're really, you could go either way. The more literal uh, Greek word is to sin against transgress. NIV will use trespass because it's, it's an easier English con uh, a concept, and that's the main thing. Either one of those will work. Yeah. Um, ever since you started the Roman study, and you brought up the concept of grace, and it's just really caused me to dwell on it, to understand, okay. to understand it better. And I have Dr. Stanley's uh, Bible. Good. You want you, excuse me, you say you have Dr. Stanley's Bible. You have Dr. Stanley's notes on the Bible. So, and let me just say, before you start, that's fine. But what Dr. Stanley says, and I don't mind you reading it, is still, I don't understand, that's just, that's Dr. Stanley's view. That's okay. All right. It helped, to, it helped Good. me to get a hold of this, okay. this whole grace concept and to broaden my understanding. So, he's one of my mentors. Anyway, so he talks He's talking, he says, what the Bible says about the grace in which we stand. Uh -huh. He's talking about it being a position. Grace is a position, okay. And it's based on Romans 5, 2. And perhaps, uh, anyway, it enlightens me. Um, it says in his commentary, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul wants us to have a firm mental picture of God's grace in our lives. To do this, he uses the phrase, Paul uses the phrase, this grace in which we stand for the believer living in God's grace is all-consuming. You can't walk away from it because God thinks, responds, and views us through the eyes of grace. We live in a sphere of grace surrounded by his goodness. Okay, and so this idea of us being within a sphere, you know, grace comes into our lives and faith comes into our lives through the gift of God, and we live in it even though we are often distracted by circumstances in our lives or whatever. And it, it just, I don't know, it helps Good. to clarify this idea of walking within the sphere 
of God's grace. Yeah. Uh, it just it gave a little more picture. Yeah. Yeah. You disagree with it? With Dr. Stanley? Uh, no, I don't disagree with what he said. I mean, he just clarified, well, he attempted to clarify what Paul says. Uh, uh, so, I mean, there's nothing, no, there's nothing against start. It's fine. Mike, yeah, I mean, I would agree with what he said. Yeah, just pretty much. What else? Ah, the baby's back. My example came back. Yes. How do I fit Eve into original sin? It's, it's brought up a lot. She's included with Adam. I mean, in other words, if you go back to Genesis, the purpose wasn't to get to Eve, it was to get to Adam. To get to Adam, he had to go to Eve. So Adam is the representative head of the human race. Uh, and uh, Eve is guilty of sin, but it's through Adam that um, we would say original sin has come. But at the same time, I don't, I don't make a huge distinction. I mean, she was guilty. She did what she did. Uh, but Adam was guilty of sin also. Uh, and, and Adam, I don't want to say Adam's sin was greater, but a- Adam had a, a contact with God that was different than Eve's. He had the commandment given to him directly. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that. But I really, I, you know, to, to me, she falls into that. This, this, remember Paul said that Adam is a type to come or foreshadowing. He is a representative. Jesus is representative. So that's where the analogy is because of the... When you look at... The, you have to understand what the analogy is portraying. It's two representative heads. So it doesn't absolve Eve from anything. Paul talks about Eve in other passages in her sin, what she did. Anything else? Okay. Hoping this time I can get food from the food truck. Last time I didn't. We'll see you later.